Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's just take a, just kind of a general view here. Uh, most of Paul's writings in particular, but uh, the, all of the epistles in general, uh, but, but Paul in particular, he, he always has a break somewhere towards the middle of the book where he'll take the first half and he'll just introduce eternal truths. For instance, uh, if you look in, in chapter 1, I think it's around verse three or four. I don't. Weist doesn't have the. He has a big block, so it's hard to remember exactly which verse you're on. But let's start in verse three of Ephesians one. He says, "May the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be eulogized or be um, praised, which is what eulogy means. The one who conferred benefactions." upon us in the sphere of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, even as he selected us out for himself in him before the foundation of the universe were foundations of the universe were laid to be holy ones and without blemish before his searching, penetrating gaze. Kenneth gets a little wordy there. Basically, if I remember King James, New King James says before the foundation of the world, God in Christ blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is a universal truth. It's a universal doctrine that that nobody it wasn't there there are some promises of God, a lot of promises of God that are conditional. I will do this if you will do this. A lot of the the scriptures about giving, um, if you sow, you will receive. In the Gospels, it talks about when you sow, this isn't finance, it just says when when you sow forgiveness, or specifically, I think it's talking about unforgiveness there, the principle is the same. You will receive back, pressed down, shaken together, running over through the hands of men whatever you sowed so you sow anything you're going to get it back multiplied those that is a conditional promise i have to sow to get the multiplication factor back this is a universal this is an unsolicited this is our blessing it's a doctrine of the church and we didn't do anything for it god did this before the foundation of the world, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Well, he just goes through, and I'm not going to try to find the others because it's, it's very difficult with, um, with not having my normal Bible. But it's, he tells us in, in, in chapter 2 that he is, not only has he saved us, but he has raised us up and made us to sit with him in heavenly places. Well, when we got saved, actually when Jesus came out of the grave, that became a fact for us. We have been 
elevated. We have been resurrected. We were resurrected in Christ when Christ came out of the grave. That is a spiritual truth. But Paul will give these huge spiritual truths through the first half of all of his letters. But then midway through, he starts saying, okay, now, these things God did for you, period. You didn't do anything to earn them. You didn't do anything to deserve them. You didn't. No activity of yours is based on why God did this. But because he has done these things for you, now this is how you should live. And the second half chapters in Ephesians here, chapters 4, 5, and 6, he is going to get in specifically to the different areas that these doctrines of the church, these great teachings of the, of, of the church, what responsibilities they bear with us. And it would be in, in the same way, you know, I, it, it's kind of the spirit of this age. Uh, I see it a lot in um, the millennials. I saw it a lot, especially when I taught school, taught high school. Um, not, it's not a universal truth about all young people because I know a lot of young people that they live self-sacrificing lives. They are ready to help. They're ready to drop anything. They go join the service. They join the Peace Corps. They're ready to sacrifice and, and live a, self, a selfless life. But the real spirit of the age is I'm entitled. You owe me. It's where you, we, we get, and it, it, it really does drive me crazy. You know, we derisively call the, the, some of the younger generation snowflakes because they don't want to be offended. They don't want to be challenged. They don't want to hear anything they disagree with. Probably the greatest example of that, I saw this on, on uh, YouTube, this guy, and he was being provocative. He was, to be honest with you, the man was just being an idiot. He should have just stayed home. But he decided to walk onto a college campus with a red Trump Make America Great Again hat and a sign that said, I support Trump. And he walked into a very liberal college campus. But they also took cameras along because they wanted to. They were, they were, were priming to see what kind of reaction they get. And this girl came out, and quite literally, it sounded like someone was murdering her. She did this blood-curdling scream to the point that another girl came up and said, Are you okay? And she turned to her and she says, Yes, I'm fine. I'm just protesting what he stands for. And then she just gave this primal scream and just kept getting up in this guy's face screaming and screaming. And I'm thinking, Lord, that just that, that typifies the spirit that you find on liberal college campuses today. I don't want to see anything that I disagree with. And if I disagree with you, whether it's politics, social, it doesn't matter the disagreement. I, I, I think in some cases, you know, some of these kids would probably do that if you, you know, if they went to, to CC's and they couldn't get their favorite pizza on the buffet. 
they'd go into primal screams because I'm being deprived, I'm being discriminated against. Well, the Christian life isn't that way. <laughs> the Christian life, basically, Paul teaches, and that's where we get the, the main basis of our Christianity, how our Christian life should be lived. Paul, Paul preaches and teaches, because God did this, you are not necessarily obligated, but Jesus paid a debt you can never repay. He gave his entire life for you. So if you are going to be a dedicated disciple, learner, follower of Christ, then you owe him everything. It's not just that. Now, now we are, don't misunderstand me. We are sons of God. We are children of God. But Paul says it right here, chapter 4, verse 1. He starts this whole chapter. So then I, the prisoner of the Lord. And in chapter 1, he said, I am Paul, an apostle. Paul, an ambassador of Jesus Christ through the will of God. To the saints, the ones who are in Ephesus, namely believing ones in Christ Jesus. He said, I am an apostle of Christ. Other places he in, in this letter and in his other, he says, I'm a bondservant. A bondservant in the, the Jewish culture was someone who had the right to walk free, but they walked up to a doorpost. And boy, you talk about a tough way to get your ears pierced. They would go up to a doorpost, put their earlobe against the doorpost, and, and their master would put a nail and, and a hammer and hammer a hole in their earlobe. And that was a sign that I am willingly submitting myself as a servant for life to this person. That's the picture that Paul gives us. That's his relationship with Christ. Because... Everything that Jesus did deserves to be answered by us. He, he wants us to have fellowship with him. His number one desire is to, to just be a friend, just be a part of our lives. I, I, I've, and if you don't have older kids, this is maybe a little hard to understand because I didn't understand it until my kids got grown and, and went away. I crave fellowship with my son and daughter and my son-in-law and daughter-in-law not because I want to control their life or tell them what to do, but I want to know what's going on in their life just so I can be a part of their life. That's God's attitude towards us. Now, he, he, if we're smart, we'll allow him to control every aspect of our life because he has a much better viewpoint on life than we do. He not only wants to have fellowship with us, but he does want to lead us because he knows the best route for us to take. And if we're smart, we will do that. 
allow him to lead us. But these doctrines of, of, of chapter 1 through 3 all play in to what our character should be. And, and when it comes right down to it, the, the reason that we need to demonstrate Christian character, which is what chapter 4, 5, and 6 is going to talk about, is that God has given us a task or a job of proclaiming the message of Christ to the world. We saw that in, in chapter 3, that one of the main um, functions of us was to declare to or make known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places the wisdom of God. We do that by living the right way. So let's, with that introduction, which didn't turn out to be real brief, let's read through verses 1 through 3. And we will, I'm going to read it in, let me read it in Weasts. And Kenneth goes all the way to um, chapter 6, so I think I can, I know where it breaks. But this is... Kenneth Weiss' translation of, of Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 3. He said, I beg of you, please, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, order your behavior, behavior in a manner worthy of the divine summons with which you were called, with every lowliness or all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, doing your best best to safeguard the unanimity of the spirit in the bond of peace. I heard someone just today made the point that um, when they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He said, number one commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself on these two scriptures hang all of the um, law and the prophets which is in the entire old testament so when you look at that jesus made the declaration if you're looking at the law and the prophets which is genesis 1 1 through the end of malachi inclusive you can sum it all up love the love the lord your god with all your heart with all your mind with all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself it all comes down to walking out god's love that's what paul's trying to sum this up we do that he said well let me read barclay's translation so then I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to behave yourselves in a way that is worthy of the calling with which you are called. God called us in love, so part of our requirement is we need to live, when he says, behave yourselves, he's talking about our lifestyle. Now, the, the, the sad part for me is I've had Christians that literally wanted to fight and say, we're still under the Ten Commandments. God has never revoked the Ten Commandments. Well, he hasn't. 
But the, the, the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to show us what love wasn't. It proves to us that we can't keep those laws, but God poured out his grace to empower us to walk out his nature, which satisfies the Ten Commandments, but it is a calling, but it's behavior that's worthy of that calling that God put on us. It's voluntary. We do it. It's, it's, I've said this before. My wife and I, in fact, we joked about this today. We were talking to, to someone that was in the ministry, and, and there, are, there are pressures on every marriage. You, you, it's just part of it. You, you, you say I do, <laughs> the devil's going to attack you. He's going to attack any close relationship, friendship, you make a, a declaration that I'm going to walk in love with this person. The enemy is going to try to attack that because he hates, he hates fellowship and partnership. He doesn't want anybody to walk in love. But we, we made the, the statement, Gina made the statement, and we've joked about this for a year, that, that divorce was never a possibility in our lives. Murder was always an option. And part of it was the reason that was possible was once you got out of jail, you know, you'd have a great Christian testimony, which is sad to say there was more truth to that than, than fiction. But part of what God has called us to do is that calling is God calling us first to him to have a relationship and then to have a relationship with everybody that we come in contact with. If for no other reason to walk out the gospel in front of him, not to worry about rules and regulations and I got to do this and I got to do that and I can't. And, and the, the problem with the law is it's all don'ts. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Well, there may be things that we shouldn't do. I just saw a clip, and I'd seen it before. They were interviewing Donald Trump um, during the transition period of after the election, but before he became president, and they were asking him about his brother because his older brother died of alcoholism. And Donald Trump is a teetotaler. He, he, he didn't do it out of Christian conviction, but he watched alcohol conquer, physically destroy his brother, who, by his admission, was much more charismatic, much brighter, and would have been a and was a much better person than he was. And he said, "Because of that, I swore I will never talk, I will never take a drink." Reason being, if you never start, it cannot conquer you. Well, that's not a bad philosophy. But there are some things in the world that you have a hard time staying completely away from. Pornography is, is an evil thing. But I'll be honest with you. I see billboards today on the side of the road that would have been considered pornographic in the 50s. And I can't avoid them. You drive down the road, it's right there staring you in the face. And people would have gone to jail. You see things on commercials 
you know, there, there was a, a joke on um, um, Christian circles about there was a pastor who during um, Easter season, he did a preached a message on the resurrection. And he asked the, you know, these, he, he called the, the children up and preached a little mini sermon to them. And he said, you know, as a question, he said, do you all know what the resurrection is? And little boy held up his hand. He said, yes, what do you think it is? He said, well, I don't really know what it is. But I do know that if, you, if, you, if it lasts more than four hours, you should call your doctor. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is a kid who obviously is probably a preschooler or very early elementary. And he already is getting bombarded with sexual images on the TV that he doesn't have any concept. Our world has things that bombard us that we really should avoid. But if you're going to live a normal life and go to the grocery store and go to work and do anything normal, you're going to get bombarded by them. You're going to get exposed to them. So we can't avoid the negative at all at, at, in some ways. But we can always emphasize the positive. We can always make it our call to walk in love towards people. And Paul said it in, in the book to Romans. The definition of love is love does no harm to his neighbor. That's not always easy to do because we get our flesh involved. But we can do it. But then Paul goes on and, and gets more specific in these first three, three verses. He said, verse 1, I urge you to behave yourselves in a way that is worthy of the calling with which you were called. I urge you to behave with all humility, gentleness, and patience. He lists three things right there. Very first thing he lists, I want you to walk in humility. Now I will tell you, our world, our society, looks down on humility. A, a synonym of humility would be submissiveness, thinking more of others than I think of myself. People will tell you, if you don't stand up for yourself, people will walk over you. I've had, I had people, especially when I first got, uh, as an adult, got serious about being a Christian. I had people tell you, look, God helps those that help themselves. Because if you don't help yourself, you're never going to amount to anything. Because how will you ever be promoted? Well, God promotes you if you do things right. Maybe a little harder, may take a little longer. But in the end you get the blessings with no cursing attached to it. Humility is the, the Barclay cast it this way. He says it's the gem of all virtues. But before Christianity, in the Greek world, humility was considered horrible. The, the, the Greek word here that's translated humility, and I'm going to, this is a horrible, I'm horrible at my Greek pronunciations, but I believe it's, it's pronounced tapanos. But quite literally, all of the words for, for humble, 
prior to Christian writings were um, they all had some kind of a suggestion of meanness attached to it. They were, they were always considered negative. To be humble in the Greek world was to be um, ignoble or ignoble, to be slavish, to have no reputation, to be um, one of the synonyms was cringing or craven. It was someone who cowered and just had no strength and had no backbone to do anything. Christianity took humility and said, no, this is the crown jewel. But in order to do that, the number one requirement to be humble in a Christian sense, you have to know yourself. Now, that knowing ourself is knowing ourself in Christ, according to Paul. That's what Paul has dealt with three chapters. I need you to know that you are, are in Christ. That even though, chapter 3 said, even though you were born in trespasses, you were by nature a child of wrath, and that you were, there was nothing good in you. Even when you were in that state, Christ died for you. Not only did he die for you, but when he died for you, when he was resurrected, he came out of the grave and elevated you to his throne. Knowing who you are in Christ gives you the ability to walk in humility because you know, I don't have to promote myself. I know who I am. It's amazing. There is a term, psychological term, and I know you've all heard it, of people having a Napoleonic complex. And you almost always see it in, in little guys guys that are shorter than average or smaller than average, it's almost like they walk around with a chip on their shoulder. Well, in Christ, once you come to the knowledge of who you are in Christ, you realize you have authority and you have power and you don't have to promote yourself because you're, you're one of Paul's secrets was he, he, he said, I have learned to be content in whatever state I find myself in. Now, he was never content to do without unless he knew it was God's will for him to be doing without something temporarily. He was always acting in faith and, and seeing promotion come, but he also never had to promote himself because he knew who he was in Christ. That's Christian humility. And it comes out of that knowledge of, of who I am in Christ. And I know that I don't have to, um, I don't have to pr promote myself. 
because I've got God on my side and I've got God promoting me and I'm already perfected in Christ. So in one sense, yes, I'm, I'm in one sense, I still miss the mark. I still screw up quite regularly. But in another sense, I don't have to even judge myself because I'm in Christ. It's, it's a paradox. It's a, it's a very obvious paradox. But I have confidence in who Jesus is more than in who I am in my flesh. And because I do that, I can walk in, in Christian humility. Now, Barclay says gentleness and gentleness is well gentleness is when you see someone you see a father pick up a newborn child you have the power you could snuff that life out in a heartbeat it it takes nothing for a newborn to get injured you know children in fact, my, my son-in-law, bless his heart, he, he said not too long ago, he said, I figured out having a two-year-old and a newborn. He said, my number one job as a dad is to keep my two-year-old from accidentally killing my newborn. <laughs> because the two-year-old wanted the newborn to play. And he didn't understand that he couldn't play that way and trying to teach him to be gentle with a newborn was hard to do. Well, you literally can end a child's life when they're that young. They're, they're, they're that fragile. Well, gentleness is having the strength to do harm, but choosing to use that strength to protect and serve gently. That's... that's also what what uh, the King James would call meekness the the Greek word there is paratus which is from the Greek word praus and it has two lines of, of, of meaning one came from Aristotle and Aristotle would would and, and this was part of the the thinking process of the Greeks in this early, they would take any virtue and they would put to its two extremes. And, and by showing its extremes, they would, could, you could get at least some, um, some idea of what it was, what quality it had. The Paratos, Aristotle, the two extremes that he described it as being was too angry and never being angry at all. So on the one hand, you've got somebody, and, and we've all been there as men, where you just lose it. You're screaming blood red. You want to break things. You just want to go nuts and may, maybe do go nuts. And then there's the other side where you just, you never, you, 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 no matter what happens, you display no emotion at all, even in situations where you should have some emotion. 
Well, in the middle of that is the, the right proportion. This man who has this prowse is the man who will get angry when he sees injustice. You can move him to action pretty easily if there's something going on that needs intervention. He will use his strength to, to be the father to the fatherless, to protect the weak. You know, the, 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 the picture of in, in um, cartoon circles would be Superman coming to the rescue of someone who's being bullied or being mugged. You come in and you take the bully and you back the bully up and say, no more, and you stop them, even if you have to physically intervene. But it's the, also the, the person that in a situation where someone is just ignorant or they, they don't know any better and they're acting foolishly, you can just stand by and let them berate you and not have an emotional response and not lose control, but stand and be patient and, and I had situations where you know going into it, and part of this is just learning to, to trust in God's anointing to, to carry you through some situations, where you know that people, they need to vent. They, you need to just let them let it out. And it can be in counseling, it can be another, and you just, they start and you just say, okay, as long as it doesn't get physical and I have to protect myself, I'm going to let them go. They can say whatever they want, and I'm not taking it personal. That's being gentle. Jumping into action when you need to, but also allowing people to vent and not taking it personally and not wanting to fight back. It's having total self-control. It, and that is a Christian characteristic because, believe me, being in, in control, difficult sometimes, really difficult. And then the third virtue that, that he says, gives here, is patience, which is the Greek word um, macrothumia, which has two, again, two directions. It, it describes the spirit that will never give in. This is the person, and, and I, I watched part of this movie. It's one of my favorite older movies with uh, Paul Newman, Cool Hand Luke. If you've ever seen Cool Hand Luke and you remember the fight scene, he's fighting George Harrison. They're boxing out in, in front of their barracks where, where the chain gang has to live. And George Harrison, or not George Harrison, um, Kennedy. George Kennedy is huge he's a big man and Paul Newman wasn't very big well they're going to box well George Kennedy is just beating the tar out of out of Paul Newman's character but he will not quit he just keeps coming back and coming back and coming back and coming back and finally George Kennedy looks at him and he says just stay down and he crawls up off his feet and says you'll have to kill me because I'm not quitting. And finally, they, he, he wears George Kennedy down, not physically, but emotionally. 
He says, okay, I give in, you win. Throws him over your shoulder and they become best friends. That is Christian patience. It's, I described someone, we were, we were talking the other day, and I said, I've been knocked down more times than I can count. But I, one of my very earliest memories, and I could not have been more than about three years old because I remember where we were living, and we left that place when I was four. And it was in the summer, it was in the fall of the year, or spring of the year, because I was outside, but school was in session. And I had my cars, and I made me a little town in the dirt, and I'm playing. And the school bus stopped, and the bigger kids, and these are elementary age kids, bigger kids got off the bus, and this one kid walked right through my town and ruined my roads and ruined my town. And I'm telling you, I came up out of that dirt, and this guy was twice my size. But I let in him like a whirlwind. And my mom had to come out and rescue me because, you know, he's a kid. He's not going to take this little bitty squirt coming up and, and fighting him. But I wouldn't, I, it was like I was just infuriated. And it, was, it wasn't Christian patience. It wasn't defending the weak. It was my flesh coming out of a three-year-old. He ruined my town, and I'm going to get him. But I, I came after him, and I, I still to this day, you can knock me down, and I may be flat on my back, but I'm still going to be punching up. I just, I don't, I, especially when it's spiritual things, I don't want, I won't give in to the devil. I, if, if, if the devil could kill me with my last dying breath, I'd rebuke him and bind him in the name of Jesus just to get in one more punch before I departed the earth. That is is this patience it's it's never ever give up probably one of the more famous speeches of um, Winston Churchill after the war it was in the 50s he went to some school I forgot I think it was a prep school I don't think it was a university and his speech consisted and this is a this is a graduation speech usually those things are 20 30 minutes long minimum his entire speech consisted of never, never, never quit. Four words. But because it was Winston Churchill, when, when he took over as Prime Minister of Great Britain at the beginning of the war, everybody, he was everybody's last choice to be Prime Minister. He was not popular. They, he, he was the last choice, but he was the only choice. Everybody in his cabinet said, we've got to surrender. We've got to negotiate. We've got to get out of this war. You just have to go talk to Hitler and make a peace treaty. And he got up and gave his, we will fight on the beaches. We will fight in the, in the meadows. We will fight on the landing shores. I don't promise you anything but blood, sweat, and tears. But we will never surrender. We will never give up. Greatest speech, you know, it just rallied the entire country. But that's Christian patience. I'm not giving up. I'm not going to quit. But again, just kind of like gentleness, it will endure insult and injury without bitterness and without complaint. It's part of the reason 
Paul said, you need to learn to rejoice in the midst of trouble. James said it, count it all joy when various trials come against you. That's not easy to do. It's not easy to do even a little bit. Because most of us, Peter said, think it not strange when some fiery trial comes upon you. What's the first thing we do when a fiery trial comes? Or my first thought is, well, this is strange. I was believing God for this trial not to come. God, what's going on here? <laughs> and Peter's saying, don't think it's strange. You've got an enemy. James says, count it all joy. Peter says, or, or Paul says, look, this is one of the crowning jewels. Have patience. Be humble. Be gentle. Be patient. Don't quit. Don't take offense. Which that, not taking offense, in our world, the world today, not the, not, not the Christian world, but the non-Christian world, everybody takes offense at everything. Everybody takes everything personally. It's, it's, it is, in my humble opinion, it is the spirit of Antichrist. It's the opposite of what Christian, Christian character does. Christian character does not take offense. And yet... We see it all. It's one, it should be the greatest contrast that we see between us and the world. It ought to make us stand out that we don't take offense. And then verse 3, and I'm just going to read it and we'll get back into it more next week. I urge you to bear with one another in love. Again, it's back to this, to what Jesus said, greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the entire Christian walk. Bear with one another in love. I urge you eagerly to preserve that unity which the Holy Spirit can bring by binding things together in peace. The first three chapters were all about taking the disunity of the world and bringing us into unity. That was what Paul talked about in, in chapter 3, about being one new man in Christ. Take Jew and Gentile, and I've made a new man, the church. That's not Jew. It's not, it's not Jewish. It's not Gentile. It's brand new. We have to preserve that unity. That's not easy to do. It's why we have church splits. It's why we have divorces. It's why friends don't stay friends. Because unity is difficult. It has to be fought for. It has to be fought for constantly or it, it will be lost. Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.